0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Unspoken Unsung. I'm your host, Dan Danner. This will be unlike any other Unspoken Unsung episode. Usually, we explore events that shape the lives of our guests in an experiential, historical perspective. This time, history was actually being made during an Unspoken Unsung interview. On January 6, 2021, at the same time as the U.S. Capitol was under attack, I was conducting an interview with Reverend Madison Shockley. Reverend Shockley and I were both fully aware that, even as we spoke, an insurrection was underway in our nation's capital. Madison and I were shocked and angry that a mob was not only desecrating our nation's beautiful Capitol building, but also our nation's sacred rule of law. We were angry at the senselessness of the insurrection. Since more than 60 lawsuits challenging the election results had already been filed in five swing states, all were found to be without merit and dismissed. A number of those decisions were handed down by judges appointed by Donald Trump himself. The state's election audits, recounts, Certifications and court rulings were ignored by a mob incited to superimpose its will over the will of many millions of voters. These facts form a critical context for today's bonus episode. Madison and I agreed that the magnitude of the events of January 6, 2021 and the year that followed warrants a continuation of last year's interview. This time, to explore where we were as a nation, where we are as a nation, and where we're going as a nation, viewed through the prism of last year's tragically historic assault on Congress. Here is that conversation. Madison Shockley, welcome back to Unspoken Unsung.
1: Glad to be with you, Dan. Glad to be with you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'll always remember our last interview in much the same way. I remember, you know, where I was and what I was doing when President Kennedy was shot in Dallas or when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated or when Neil Armstrong first walked on the moon. Mm -hmm. You and I were together as a violent insurrection raged in the nation's capital.
1: How will you remember that day? I remember that day as... A almost surreal moment to watch the Congress hide and in, in place or in fact flee the chambers because of the violent threats against the members of the House and the members of the Senate, their staff and anyone who they might have in their employ. I remember it as again, a surreal, unbelievable moment that the democracy that is the bedrock of our nation was cracking and crumbling right before our eyes. And it was just unbelievable to watch in, in real time. And I was wondering, you know, why they weren't more prepared Or quite frankly, why there wasn't more uh, force used against the rioters, because most of what we've talked about in the Black Lives Matter is unarmed black people being shot by police and the police are routinely, we have one or two exceptions, but historically routinely exonerated. Because even though the person was unarmed, even though they weren't an actual threat, the law simply states that if they fear for their lives, that they are justified in shooting the unarmed uh, black person. It was clear that the officers of the Capitol Police were in fear of their lives and in fear of the lives of those they were sworn to protect and had every legal justification to use force, but showed this extraordinary restraint. And I just wonder, well, where is that restraint in other circumstances? Now, I don't wish that people, more people had been killed. And, but, but the point I'm making is how the police actually are capable of exercising restraint. And so that is the point I'm making in, in regard to the other cases where even though justified, uh, they showed restraint here, how they used justification to uh, unleash deadly force in so many other ex- encounters involving people of African descent or people of color across the nation. Well, it also
0: seems that one of the other aspects of that is that had they showed up in force, in numbers, had they showed up as they did in Kenosha when Rittenhouse shot three people with armored vehicles and and people that were, uh, you know, in in uh, full riot gear, had there been numbers of them, I don't know that the people that entered the Capitol would have felt that they had a shot at it
1: pulling it off. That's right. That's right. Well... Th- the irony, of course, Dan, is that we now know from the inquiry of the um, January 6th committee of the House that the president, that President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, had given instructions to the National Guard to protect the Trump supporters. So there was every enablement and facilitation of this riot by the White House itself. So it's kind of hard to expect that they would have been prepared to defend the Capitol when they'd been given instructions to defend the rioters.
0: Wow. What do you think is driving re- re- this right wing extremism that led up to those events?
1: Well, one of the studies that's been done by demographic studies, has shown very clearly that the people involved in the January 6th insurrection predominantly come from blue states, but in cities, communities on that granular level within blue states that are changing racially. So white people from communities that are growing in their minority population get triggered by that increase. And that was one of the major consistent correlations in this demographic study of who participated in the insurrection. So that tells me right there that it was driven simply or fundamentally i'll say by race these are people who want to push back on the natural growth and evolution of the diversity of our country and that's what i want my country back that's what make america great again. all that is just code language for race and how do white people retain power Retain dominance, even though they are no longer or at in 2043, I think is one of the calculations will no longer be the majority population in the country. And what's also clear is that democracy be damned if we're not in the majority because they know what they've done to minority rights when they were the majority. And they fear being in the minority, lest others do what they did. But of course, the history of the civil rights movement, the history of the abolitionist movement, all show that when we've made racial progress, there has not been retribution or revenge. People are simply trying to move forward and to live free.
0: You know, that that brings to mind for me the days when um, Gore ran against Bush, and I don't have any recollection of losing friends over the 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 ideological differences between the two of them, or any really of the differences. Even though it was clear that that uh, Bush was uh, inclined toward uh, toward Iraq and the invasion and all that, but. Somehow or another when President Obama first ran I Had friendships that were strained. I had friendships that were lost
1: And it seems like that kind of bears you out on that one. I think that's a perfect example and and You you might call it the backlash to the progress of black people in America and We see that backlash a retrenchment in every episode of progress so if you look at the Civil War there was this fleeting moment during Reconstruction when black people black men at that time had the vote and elected local officials state representatives members of the US House of Representatives even members of the United States Senate. And then the campaign of terror by the Ku Klux Klan, the white citizens councils, and all those other organizations of white supremacy struck back and clamped down and canceled the progress that was made and promised to black people after the Civil War, took back everything except their legal freedom, but without the right to vote, without the right to move freely, without the right to, to equal uh, access to the ballot, without the right to equal access to re- resources and finances, they, in many cases, people have said, were returned to a state of peonage that was only barely above slavery. And so that backlash, uh, some will call it white lash, uh, was then repeated a hundred years later when the civil rights movement and remember that, a hundred years later, restored those voting rights. We went a hundred years after the Civil War, before there was another representative or mayor or black member of the House from the South. And so that took a hundred years to get back to where we were, and just on voting rights. And then... Affirmative action was a moment, a fleeting moment of progress, and then the white lash that reversed all of those gains. And we're even now, as you know, trying to pass H.R. 1, trying to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to restore the voting rights that were won in 1963, 64, 65. And so some have even said, that the election of Barack Obama net net was negative for progress because of of the white lash that gave us Donald Trump. That without a Barack Obama, there would never have been a Donald Trump because that gave Donald Trump the racist platform to mount a campaign that took over the Republican Party. Because none of the other candidates were willing to say out loud what the people in the base were feeling, except Donald Trump. And that's why he was nominated by the Republican Party. You, you, uh, you can read about it, you can hear, hear about it. The base got tired of being promised reversal of affirmative action, reversal of immigration, reversal Of all these progressive policies that brought diversity and equity to our society, the other Republican establishment figures paid lip service to it, but they knew they were never going to do it. Maybe they didn't even believe in doing it, but they knew they had to pay lip service to it. Trump comes along and says, I'm going to actually do it. I'm gonna build that wall. I'm gonna. And it wasn't that he accomplished anything in that regard. Some things, certainly a lot of pain of those families that were separated at the border. But of course, we know there's no wall. And which proves that even the base wasn't concerned about actually following through, but they wanted the rhetoric. They wanted the symbolism that white supremacy would be able to put up a wall between us and brown people on the south side of the border. That we could put up a wall against the Muslims around the world. That we could put up a wall against the dark hordes. And that's at the base and core of of what's going on right now. And that's what happened on January 6th. They were not going to allow the progress that they saw in the election of the first African-American woman as vice president one heartbeat away from the presidency. That's what they were trying to stop. They weren't trying to stop the steal. They were trying to stop the possibility that an African-American woman could become president of the United States should this 80-year-old almost president lose that one heartbeat.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking as you you were speaking that on the 6th, on the anniversary of the uh, the insurrection, an article um, that I read discussed the 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 common theme that's been voiced lately about that we're in the middle of a civil war, and that the the article said so. But who can tell us what the civil war is about? You know what what exactly? I mean, you know the the previous civil war, obviously, it was about. Slavery and whether states could could not only uh, endure as slave states, but proliferate on into the new territories and and states as well, which again would provide a uh, a congressional um, majority. So it seems that you know one of the things that's been going on for a while is the whole thing about who's going to be in the majority and who can do what. Yeah.
1: But as you know. What's clear from the Republicans in all of their strategies is that if they lose the majority, they will steal the democracy. They will trade their minority power for democracy every day of the week. That's clear. And of course, as you know, the Constitution, maybe not anticipating how the population would be distributed, but gave this inordinate power to what are now considered, you know, the flyover states or the empty states. Uh, and that undemocratic principle built into the Electoral College uh, is, is an advantage that's been been there for a long time. It, well, ever since African Americans got the vote, because African Americans, when the vote was, was given and won, were h- highly concentrated in the states of the South. And so not only by controlling, and, and but however even though concentrated, we're not a majority in any state. And so the irony of our current political situation is the majority of black people still concentrated in the South have almost n- no impact on our presidential election because they are minorities in each of those states. And that's why Georgia was so important. It is the linchpin. It is the cornerstone of this transition. The fact, even though I don't think it's a majority by any stretch, but large enough uh, population of African-Americans in Georgia that they were able to win the two seats, won by an African-American, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, and the other by a Jewish <laughs> gentleman who would have thunk it that in Georgia, that a black man and a Jew would be their senator, senatorial representatives. And that's why they fought so hard to overturn the election in Georgia. You heard the, you heard Donald Trump talking to the secretary of state. I need you to find me 11,000 votes. They were willing to go to every length to stop the South. From even starting to turn,
0: I find myself thinking as as I reviewed that uh, article about what is the civil war. This, if there is this civil war, what's it about? Mm -hmm. And I think of the language that I hear on the news about you know some of the politicians that speak about elites and and voy- couch things in terms that the democratic party is the party of the elite and the the you know the rich guy and all that sort of thing
1: well, well that's that's nonsense <laughs> that's nonsense um, i'll answer it a little more directly i i would i would beg to differ just a little bit and i know that's certainly the conventional wisdom even on the left of of analyzing and understanding the civil war as being about slavery. But what the Civil War was really about was white supremacy. And slavery just happened to be the means by which white supremacy maintained itself. And so now that slavery's gone, any and every other means to maintain white dominance, white su- supremacy, is what this struggle is about. This is what this new civil war is about. So in in essence, they're about the same thing. How do white people maintain dominance and power in America? And they see the threat as even greater because of the demographic changes. So this civil war is going to be different because it's not going to be the Confederacy versus the North. Because as I often say here at church when I talk about racial issues, it says, let's not be fooled. There's just down South and up South. And, you know, what's been happening in Minnesota and Wisconsin in the last two years, that's where Rittenhouse was. That's where George Floyd was up North or rather up South. So it's not going to be the confederacy against the north this is neighbor on neighbor this is you know neighborhood on neighborhood this is blue precincts and red precincts it's going to be a very different kind of uh, civil war and if you read the article by the general in the washington post a few weeks ago this general fears greatly that in addition to the neighborhood on neighborhood Uh, kind of struggle, if not battle. National Guards in red states may refuse to follow the president's orders in a national crisis, saying and claiming that the president elected by this corrupt system is not legitimate. Then you would have military units in one state that are defying the federal government and military units in another state following the federal government's orders, and that's a real civil war. Yes. I found
0: myself also when when I read that article, you know, wondering about how people rationalize something like an attack on the Capitol. And <clears throat> I started thinking that one of the ways that the psychological war is, is waged is that really, you know, the policies that I see, the, the tariffs, things of that nature, that's going to impact the poor because it's not as though the companies are paying that. that all those costs are getting passed on to the consumer. Oil prices have uh, gone up 125% in the last two years. And so then in that, when people are hurting anyway, if they can lay blame to that on some tax-hungry Democrat who is theoretically a socialist or whatever or is trying to make it easy so people that don't want to work can get away without working, then that's a formula for outrage
1: with with otherwise reasonable people. And all of that is just part of a false narrative. I, I again, it it's, it's, it's uh, as you said, the impacts of a down economy fall hardest on the poor. When gas prices go up, rich people, Democrat and Republican, buy electric cars. (laughs) And poor people continue to drive gas guzzlers. Uh, And so the increases in oil prices fall disproportionately on the poor of every color. So this is uh, a lot of the critique of the Democratic Party, I think, well-earned critique, and this is part of the reason why you didn't lose friendships between Gore and Bush, because many view them both as same as the as the same in regard to their obeisance to the corporate estate in America, both of them and President Barack Obama as well, kowtow and support and govern in deference to the corporate estate so you leave them alone and you can you can fight over the other politics but let's not change the or challenge the real power of of corporate america
0: yeah yeah oh my i uh i found myself also thinking about the notion that um that part of the warfare is a class warfare You know, like, if if somebody's talking about warfare, then the war is being waged between the the real rich, who fall in both parties, and the poor who fall in both parties. All of the the people at the lower, the middle class is shrinking, the poor are, you know, I guess it's flattened out, but... um, The other thing that I was noticing is that what it seems like, and this again seems to me to apply to both parties to some degree, is that there's this real pleasure that's taken if the other side is angry. If somebody on one side says something that's crazy or whatever, or that somebody finds just ridiculous or easily challenged, there's just a delight in pillaring them or whatever. And so, therefore, the, the argument that we get into is about, you know, just who's going to collect the most
1: amount of rights and wrongs, versus wrongs, that is. Well, well, two things. I want to address your earlier point about rich and poor. That was the beauty of the Occupy Wall Street movement. It reframed this class struggle as between the 1% and the 99 yeah. And 99% of both parties are in that 99%. Now, maybe 75% of that 1% might be in the Republican Party, but there's plenty of 1% in the Democratic Party too. So that's one point, that that, that was the brilliance and, and the contribution of the Occupy Wall Street movement, that it really did set it in the correct frame. And when we talk about parties that, that support corporate America, you know, you just look at, look at the policy of the Trump administration in their tax reduction policies where trillions of dollars were handed over to the top 10%. And then the policy that is being put forward now in the Build Back Better that would benefit in many ways the lower 80% in both taxes and in benefits. In fact, I'm sure they don't want me to say it this way, but the child care tax policy that gives $300 to every family for children under, uh, six and $250 for children over six is basically nothing but a universal basic income for families with children. But that, but there you go with that socialist talk, universal basic income. But yeah. That's what it is and and we see the clear benefits. It's pulled 40% of American children out of poverty. Why is that a not good a not a good thing? 40% of all children, black, white, Asian, Latino, native all families benefit from this. And then that comes to the point about class warfare versus, you know, racial strife in America, racial struggle in America. Racism is irrational. And we see it in the poor white people, the working class white people who vote against their own economic interests. And and that's what we have laid out here in this in this struggle. And that's why the class analysis continues to fail and fall short because it cannot accommodate the irrationality of the racist dimension of America, which continues to foil and defy logic until we accept that that's what the struggle, that's what the Civil War, that's what all of this is ultimately about and has been about from the foundation of the country. So you you remember the slogan from the Clinton campaign, it's the economy, stupid. Well, that's a class analysis. I think right now, in this moment, the slogan needs to be, it's the culture, stupid. Mm. And that if we pay attention to the culture, that and that's, again, the, the code word for race. Well, where do we see that? Talk about the, confe- the Confederate battle flag. They say it's history, heritage, by which they mean culture. We say it's racist, by which we mean it's racist. And that is the struggle under this larger rubric of culture is where you find the racial issues, where you find the uh, patriarchal issues, where you find a lot of these other cultural issues about what is American life supposed to be? How are we supposed to live? What's the family structure? All of those issues come back to this question of culture. And as long as we're stuck in this class analysis, we won't be able to see how these cultural dimensions of of homophobia, misogyny, racism, all of these cultural issues are distorting our country. And so that's why the Democrats need to broaden their lens. Yes, there's a, a, a class dimension, but I'm not sure whether it's 10% 10% or 80%. I think the class dimension, the place
0: where it plays out the strongest, is with regard to those people who are being taught that the reason they're suffering is that communist, socialist people are taking the money that out of their pockets for taxes and giving it to people who seem to feel they're entitled. And so then they, they say, well, you know, whether a black man is asking for anything or not, that person is a beneficiary of the elite who are giving
1: him some handout. Yeah. And, and and Dan, I would say this, that is a cultural analysis because there is no economic analysis that proves that's true.
0: No, actually, I think the real point is that, that um, in terms of if you were to ask, I think if you were to survey the white
1: population and ask well, how let me, many of let me just cut races- you were off, because we don't disagree about that, I'm I'm agreeing with you that they will they will say that, but it's unfounded, right? It's unfounded, and that's why I say it's a, it's a cultural argument that uses economic language, but there's no actual economic analysis that proves that's true. Here's the, the easiest example. Everybody knows that the red states in America net more income from the federal budget than the blue states. In other words, yeah. the blue states are financing the red states. Everybody knows that so the argument that socialism is wrecking the lives of the people that, you know, think they are hard workers just has no economic foundation. Well I think
0: it, it that wasn't really the point I was trying to make. What I was trying to point out was that I think that if you were to survey, most of white America would say that they're not racist. Most of them would deny it and say and say they had no part in racism, they didn't do it. I'm innocent, I'm I may be white but I'm innocent and it's too bad all that's going on, but it's not me. Yeah. And so they get to justify choices that perpetuate the situation by a rationale, like I gave, that politicians give that their taxes are going to pay for for things that the people that don't want to work and people that don't
1: want to get ahead are taking and using. I, I And again, I agree with you that they will say that, but that also is not founded in this sense. We just... Uh, I should say, I was starting to say, we mourn the death, but we celebrate the life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And one of the things he was known for saying, not necessarily original, but one thing that he often said, if you are neutral in a position, in in an environment of oppression, then you are on the side of the oppressor.
0: Yes.
1: And so in a nation where the institutions do your dirty work for you, whether it's from the disproportionate discipline of black boys in every school district across America, the school to prison pipeline that functions in every state in America, the negative health outcomes and disparities for black versus white, all of those institutional racist realities If you are neutral, then they are perpetuated by your disinterest. We out here at Pilgrim United Church of Christ, um, of which I'm honored to be the pastor, are sponsoring our anti-racism book club. And the next book we're going to read is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi the primary thesis and the main contribution of his book is simply this. The opposite of racist is not Mm -hmm. non-racist. The opposite of racist is anti-racist. And so, for all those people that you just described rightly, who will say exactly what you said, the position they're adopting is an unreal position. That's not the op, that's not the way to oppose racism to say I'm a non-racist. The only other place to stand is on the anti-racist side. So if one is not engaged in dismantling and diminishing the power of racists structures, systems and some people then you are not an anti-racist, and the other label that you can bear, or wear, is racist. So,
0: I'm thinking about what to do about it, because the, the one thing that's always been most striking to me is the absence of logic. You know, it, it seems as though that the, the, the driving force is some sort of emotional energy, and it's very seldom tied to logic so regardless of what the rationale somebody has about about you know um taxes or economics or whatever and and have that as their reason for supporting policies that are racist that are systemic which is interesting to me that there's such a fight over the idea of critical race theory and teaching the notion that there is such a that such an animal exists as systemic racism But so long as that's the case, how do you get through when, how do you, how do
1: you what do you do? Dan, that <laughs> is the question of the moment. And what you're describing, okay, we said it's the economy, stupid. I'm suggesting we move to it's the culture, stupid. Well, what you're highlighting is it's the information environment, stupid, such that we exist in two distinct and separate information worlds and so we can't even have a conversation when we don't have a common language a common set of facts a common understanding of what reality is and you know those who are manipulating us are well aware of the short attention span the lack of, of, of real leisure time the lack of education the lack of interest in being critical i mean when did being critical become a bad word you know but so so that's why if at the end of a 10-hour day you know eight hours at work hour dropping off your kids and daycare in the morning an hour to pick them up i I know i've lived that life you know at the end of a 10-hour day you come home and then you got you know two hours to do homework cook dinner get the kids to bed all right so now we're at Twelve hours and you're gonna sleep eight hours, hopefully. You know, you don't have much time to try to figure out the world. And if your only access to information is Fox News or or one of those other even further right outlets, then you aren't gonna really understand what's going on. And you won't understand even the neighbors and friends and other family members that tune in to another information outlet at the end of their day. So I don't know the answer, but the problem is very serious, that it's hard to come together when we don't have a common language, a common view of the truth and reality. Well, that's that's
0: kind of one of the ironies is that, say for instance, Mitch McConnell's statement following the insurrection pinned the blame sur- squarely on Trump said that it was a horrible thing that happened, that, you know, I mean, he condemned it in the strongest terms I've ever heard him say, and yet he wasn't alone, and, and yet these people, he, among others, has completely reversed himself, and now he's, he's pretty much in complete support of party and Trump, who seems to be the party. Yeah. And I find myself wondering, okay, if you've got video that shows the guy saying these things, and now you have another video that shows him saying just the polar opposite, that the cognitive dissonance that that should generate should be like just earth-shaking. It should be.
1: But, But as we were alluding to earlier, they only show the second video on Fox News. They probably didn't even show him condemning uh, Trump's role in the insurrection on January 6. Those people didn't even hear it, and so a lot of people are. Uh, you know, I saw a news outlet the other day, a news story where they were interviewing these these people, asking them their opinion of the uh, January 6 insurrection. They said, "Oh no, those weren't Trump supporters. Those were Democrats, or those were they were they were paid by Democrats or sent by Democrats." It's just unreal. Oh, they said they were BOM people oh, for goodness. It's <laughs> it insane, and 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 so you know, not only did Mitch McConnell make a statement that could have been repeated by the House managers in the impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump, verbatim, he then turned right around in less than a month and refused to vote for impeachment even though the, he made the case for impeachment. He made the case, in fact, for treason or insurrection by the sitting president. And so hopefully now we'll f- we'll finally get, if we can hold on to the House and Senate long enough, some real charges against well, Donald Trump. they better do it
0: quick because yes. the other thing that's kind of uh, mind-boggling to me is as of yet, there has been no special prosecutor assigned to this, and that ship has sailed.
1: I don't, I don't get it. I, I, yeah, I don't know all of the legislative, um, mechanisms necessary for that. But the fact that we couldn't even get a commission that the Senate would support to investigate what happened. That's another thing. Mitch McConnell said, we don't need to investigate what happened. We know what happened. Well, no, we don't. We are finding out a lot through this investigation. But what's amazing is he didn't even want to know.
0: Well, that's where the power play comes. That's where the, the want to hold on to power. That's, that's the other thing that I guess that I, that I don't understand. I don't understand how people that I believe to be patriotic, the Condoleezza
1: Rises of the world, why are they silent? I I know. I don't know. Uh, We have to, again, admire the courage and character that Colin Powell showed when he said, I'm out of here. I am no longer a Republican. I'm voting for Barack Obama. Um, The others are silent. But we know they've been rejected by their own party. I mean, even down to the Bushes. Uh, down to the Cheneys. Former Vice President Cheney was the only other Republican, other than his daughter, on the House floor condemning the insurrection on the anniversary of January 6th. Yeah. They were the only Republicans there. So, They are persons without a party in many ways, and I don't know. I had hoped that the Jeff Flakes and the other establishment Republicans would have splintered off into a third party. Not that they would win any seats, but maybe that splinter could be enough to prevent the the coup in the legislative coup that's underway in 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 the congress right now and in the house and in our nation to give principled republicans some place to land that would blunt uh, the power of the radicalized republican party
0: you know when earlier on i mentioned kyle rittenhouse I was thinking of that in terms of the January sixth investigation, and the way that that um, supposedly the the people that you know spoke at that um, that the the pre rally, and that deny that they have any association or affiliation with violence, and yet here when when he got. Here, a 17-year-old boy who, by the way, was carrying a weapon illegally. The, the open carry law in Wisconsin requires a minimum age of 18. Here's a 17-year-old shooting people. And the people that he shot, not one of them was a member of Black Lives Matter. One of them actually was a paramedic and who had a, a weapon on him, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... It's it's just amazing to me that all of that kind of flies in the face of, of you know, everything that theoretically the, uh, the, the people, you know, the support gun laws and say, you know, the, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, one good guy with a gun got his arm blown off. That's right. And two others got killed.
1: That's right. And Rittenhouse was not a good guy with a gun. He was the bad guy with the guy. Oh, I
0: think he was seventeen year old. He had he, he's he's yeah. a baby. Yeah. For goodness right. sake. Yeah. And it's amazing too that then after that suddenly you got people like um Marjorie oh, whatever. Taylor totally Green. Yeah, yeah, I mean that there all these people start start um offering him internships.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Making the him, Trump make, takes him, him down to
0: Mar-a-Lago and has his picture taken with him both with thumbs up. Well, you know, and one person, um, let's see who it was here. It was Madison Cawthorn.
1: No relation. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Lucky thing, his last name was Cawthorn. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but, uh, no, it, it, it's mind-boggling. It's insane. It's frustrating. It's all of those things.
0: J.D. Vance, a Republican author and candidate for Congress, appeared on Tucker Carlson's show, where he stated, I think that it's not a trial, it's child abuse masquerading as justice in this country.
1: Unbelievable.
0: Vance made no comment about the fact that Wisconsin's open carry law requires anyone openly carrying a gun to be at least 18 years old, and Rittenhouse was 17 when he shot and killed two unarmed men in a Kenosha protest. Marjorie Taylor Greene put a bill before Congress to give this kid the Congressional Gold Medal, for goodness sake. And then there's, how can anybody, that, these people, that if there's a real investigation about who incited this, if somebody, somebody explained to me how that kind of action, inviting a kid to be an intern sitting in with President, Trump, former President Trump, And all that is not an incitement. If that's not saying we want violence, I don't know what is.
1: Absolutely. And to give him an award for what he did is to encourage others to emulate his actions. That's why we give recognition and awards. And so the next um, violent teenager or young adult or whomever that brings their gun to a a protest, they're going to say, hey, I was just doing what Kyle Rittenhouse did. But you know, J.D. Vance—it's amazing that he would say such a thing when this so-called child, as and as you it, say, 17-year-old, shot three people, killed two of them, um, without any sympathy for the victims of his shooting. It's—it's uh, it's amazing.
0: Well, they're congratulating him. They're saying, as a "Matter of fact, I think I have." Marjorie Taylor Greene's Bill reads, quote, to award a congressional gold medal to Kyle M. Rittenhouse who protected the community of Kenosha, Wisconsin during a Black Lives Matter riot on August
1: 25, 2020. Yeah, it's horrendous. Uh, We run out of adjectives to describe these behaviors and these words that just defy not only logic, but defy morality, I defy morality, uh, the man killed two people, uh, one of whom was suffering from mental illness, and there's no sympathy for them from these people, it's, it's just, it's tragic.
0: So, again, you know, in the, in the context of January 6th, where we've been and where we're going, one observation that I've got is if we don't get this handled by the 2022 elections, uh, that, that investigation is going to go away.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If the Republicans take over the House, they will shut it down. Now, the only hope, of course, is that they can't shut down uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland. And hopefully, as he has said, charges will hopefully be coming against the masterminds, against the instigators, against the perpetrators of this insurrection. And that points directly at the at members of the House who've already been identified as facilitating the insurrection by inviting the organizers and plan planners and people who participated. Uh, potentially giving them tours of the White House, I mean, of the Capitol and so forth. Uh, hopefully, he will bring charges against Donald Trump, who stood up there and incited that insurrection. Um, by any definition, he's you know certainly responsible, as Mitch McConnell said, and may, may very well be, and I think is, uh, criminally culpable.
0: That was part of our conversation a year ago. Yeah. I'm going to remember that forever.
1: (laughs) Well, I think the most important takeaway from this one-year anniversary is, as you said, we have to get the levers of democracy firmly in hand before the next election in 2022, and certainly before the 2024 presidential election, or we could lose our democracy completely. And we should not kid ourselves that a shooting war, maybe not from sea to shining sea, but I think the violence has just begun. And as recent polls have shown, large percentages, I won't quote the number, 30, 40 percent, of Republicans, believe that violence is appropriate to maintain their power. So I think we are in for a real ride between now and 2024. And we need not only on the federal level, but we can see what the Republicans are doing down to the community, county councils, election boards, every step of the way are seeking to entrench themselves in the position to destroy, deny and bring about the demise of American democracy if they can't win by voting in a legal fair election. Minority rule. Absolutely. So now what, what do we do? We have to get organized as well on the neighborhood, community, county, state, and federal levels. We have to fight every day against their attempts to rig and pervert the institutions of democracy that have served us this far. We have to keep our eyes open, and it may be cliche, but it's still true. Stay woke. Yeah. So, the Democratic
0: Party, as I understand it, in sheer numbers, well outnumbers the Republican in terms of membership. So, theoretically, that number should count for something, regardless of whatever the registration or
1: the the suppression laws are. are. Well, it doesn't count for as much as we might think at first glance. Because independents overwhelmingly are former Republicans they're just too embarrassed to where they are and so the the gap isn't as big as the strict party registration would would, would suggest and we've got a very very divided nation right now and so those of us who believe in democracy uh, we have to struggle and strive on every level Like I say, from the local to the federal, from the economic to the cultural, to the informational, we have to struggle at every level to maintain democracy for all people.
0: So it sounds like some of what we need to do. I mean, I saw in the news today that um, Michelle Obama is initiating a, a voter registration initiative and a movement to get people registered to vote. Yes. Which obviously is going to be critical because if the rules are changing about how you get registered, we better get people started
1: right now. Right now, absolutely. So w- until we can change the laws that they are you know, using against uh, us and using the laws to, to commit voter suppression, we do have to work on both sides. Uh, we've got to resist those laws and try to get them straightened out. But we also have to give people the resources to comply if those laws can't be overturned before the next election. So we've got to help people get IDs. We've got to help people know where their polls are. We've got to help people navigate all the voter suppression schemes that they're coming up with. From your
0: perspective as a pastor, what's the spiritual lesson we can find in all this?
1: Well, I I think as we approach the anniversary of Martin Luther King's birth that we should reflect on his mission and the mission of the organization that he founded, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And yet we hear some of this even from President Biden, but it started with King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Their mission, SCLC, was to redeem the soul of America. Their mission was not One of uh, Schadenfreude, which is the German word for taking pleasure in in the uh, suffering of another. So what we take appropriately from those moments is hope. Hope that there's a glimmer of insight on the other side to the error of their ways that they might turn and to put it in religious terms since you asked me a spiritual question that they might turn and go in a new direction which is the definition of the word repent
0: the it, definition of repent that makes me it, think that part of that is also about me reflecting on my, own, my response
1: oh yes I, I, I think yeah we're all human and we're all, we're all tempted as as Jesus was in, in the wilderness uh, we're all tempted in those human ways And that's why the the moral declaration and preaching and teaching of figures like Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King are important to the left and the right, that our objective is not revenge. Our objective is redemption of our world so that we can have a world in which every person can live free and every person can share in the bounty of the creation that the creator has placed here for all of God's children. Oh, you
0: brought a sweet thought to me just now. Part of it was when you mentioned Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King. One of the people I most admire in history is Nelson Mandela. What a hero. What I a mean, hero. Amazing to me that after all that man went through, that forgiveness and patience and all that was his real hallmark what what he accomplished in terms of not prosecuting all the the people even people that put tires around people and burned them you know that he allowed them to go free if they admitted that what they had done
1: because his objective was 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 redemption not revenge that's the difference so there's the point isn't it yeah wow well, thank we s- you. We seek redemption, not revenge. That's great.
0: Well, on that note, let us head into 2022 seeking... Help us,
1: Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, It's been, been a great conversation. Appreciate Thanks, Madison. Appreciate the opportunity to visit again one oh, year later. I'm glad you did. Thank you.
0: My thanks to Reverend Madison Shockley, his passion for truth, for social justice and kindness inspire me. Some may find his perspective challenging, particularly in our current social milieu where the consensus on basic facts has fallen victim to justification for zero sum ruthlessness. Wherever any of us stands, on the root cause of Stop the Steal as a rationale for either the demonstration of January 6th or its descent into violence, the big lie behind it requires incredible conspiracies in order to have any contact with reality at all. Supporters of the steel premise must believe that the election commissions of the swing states singled out Donald Trump to defeat while allowing Republican campaigns for state and federal offices to win. It requires that numerous recounts and election audits were all fraudulent. It requires the support of judges who dismissed some 63 cases challenging the validity of the elections in five states. The big lie is, in a word, irrational. We often think of history as the long gone past, but we're living history right now. Madison Shockley is acutely aware of that. Spoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversaire Studio, of Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung.